before we jump into the text and and our sermon this morning, (laughs) what book of the Bible are we in, kids? Kids, what book of the Bible? Who knows? In our sermon series, we are in the book of Job. Nailed it. And uh, Job, is that in the Old Testament or the New Testament? Old. It's in the Old Testament. Good. Okay. So remember, Job is really, really suffering. He's in a really, really bad way, and he doesn't know why he's suffering. He's having such a hard time. He's going through so much terrible stuff, and he doesn't think it makes any sense, and he wants God to come and explain it to him. Okay? He wants God to show up and say, like, explain yourself. Like, this doesn't make any sense, and life is terrible. What do you have to say for yourself, God? Okay, so, kids, who likes losing toys? No, okay? Who likes getting shots at the doctor? No. Uh, Who likes broken bones? Who likes bullies? Uh, Who likes people being mean to other people? Who likes COVID? No. Uh, Okay, don't you wish, kids, don't you wish sometimes that you could go back to the beginning when God was creating the world and tell him to leave out some of that stuff? Like, uh, God, by the way, we don't, no, 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 we don't need mosquitoes. Okay, no mosquitoes. And hey, you know what would be a really, really great idea? Let's do the thing where we go to school for two days and then have five-day weekends. Better yet, you're into the whole thing. Let's do uh, six days of rest and one day of work. Like, you want to go back and you want to tell God, like, ooh, God, that, I, I, I think you meant, I think I see what you were trying to do here. Could have done it better. Who, who has ever thought that, kids, that, God should not have done it this way. Roaches. Nope. Don't need them. Don't need them, God. Uh, Okay. Well, sometimes we do. We think we know better than God. We think we know better how life should go. And Job does. This is what we're going to see with Job today. This is what we've been seeing, is that Job thinks he knows better than God. So what we're going to see today is God shows up. God shows up to talk to Job. And he's going to tell him how awesome, actually, his creation is and how awesome he is. Just think about, let's do, just think about for a second just how awesome God's creation is. Did y'all know that you can go outside and on a clear night, you can see thousands of stars? And then if you want to grab a telescope, you can see hundreds of thousands of stars. Do you know how many stars are actually out there? I had to write this down. This is a real number. About 10 billion trillion stars. About 10 billion trillion, that's, that's a number. I don't know how big, it's just, <clears throat> and actually what they say is, that's, that's on the low side. We actually think there are tons, tons more. Okay, so that's how big the universe is. Uh, how about this? Okay, that's how big the universe is. Think about how awesome it is in small ways. Did you know bees, honeybees, can make their own air conditioning? So what they do is, when the hive, when the hive gets really, really hot outside, and the wax inside starts to melt, and it's going to get the honey, and it's going to get the queen, one group of bees goes right to the entrance. The other bees are right at the top of the beehive, and they start doing their wings like this. And it creates this draft. It creates this, this wind thing that pushes all that hot air out and brings cool air in. Yeah, God designed them to do that. That's pretty awesome. The world is big. The world is small. How about this? How about milk and cookies? How about donuts? Uh, How about the snow? Rain. Like even playing in the rain. Dogs. How about dogs? 
How about hippos? Hey, what's a hippo? It's awesome. Hippos, chocolate, strawberries, ice cream. Put them all together. Like fantastic. Sunsets, mountains, beaches, running, laughing. God's creation, y'all, is so, 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 so good. It's awesome. And God's the one who made it all. And actually the truth is God does not need our help telling him how creation should go, how life should go. He tells us how it should go. So what we want to see today is that God is big and that he is awesome. And last thing, y'all, he's so big, he's so awesome, and he's so near to us. He draws so close to us. How close? How about this? He came down from heaven and became one of us in order to live for us and to die for us in order to save us. You can look at Jesus, the Son of God, our Savior, and know that yes, God is so big and he is so close to us because you, kids, you are the best part of his creation. And he loves you that much, willing to send his own son to die for you to save you. So we may not know why things get hard in this life, but what we do know is that God is bigger than all of that and that he loves you in it. And that he, is, he has saved us. And one day, everything sad will become untrue because of Jesus. That's what we're gonna see today. Everybody here, the book of Job, remember it is about conflict. Uh, that Satan, he shows up in heaven, he challenges God that since the fall, all of mankind belongs to him. And God says, no, I don't think so. Look at Job. I am saving a people by my grace. It is not true that everyone belongs to you. Uh, and Satan comes back to God's challenge with another challenge that God's promise of grace, this gospel stuff, it's an empty lie. Job really doesn't believe. He's not really his servant. He's a fraud. And God, so are you. Let me go at Job, Satan says, and I'll prove it. And God says, challenge accepted. Let's do this. So we get a conflict of champions. That's really what the book of Job is about. And so Satan attacks, brings incredible suffering on Job. Job does eventually descend into despair. He gets friends that show up who give him terrible counsel. But then a good comforter does show up, this guy Elihu, uh, and gives Job good counsel. And, but yet Job is not yet repenting. Uh, he's, he's still resisting. And so what we saw last time where we left off on that cliffhanger intentionally was the scene is getting darker and darker and darker. It's because Elihu sees what is, what is literally coming in the distance, that there are dark clouds gathering and in the distance a terrible storm is approaching and it is God himself. The storm that is coming is the Lord coming in the whirlwind, coming to challenge Job himself. So please stand for the reading of God's word. <clears throat> These are selections from Job chapters uh, 38, 39, and 40. Please follow along. Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Dress for action like a man. I will question you, and you make it known to me. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Or you, who stretched the line upon it? On what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone? 
when the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy? Or who shut in the sea with doors when it burst out from the womb, when I made clouds its garment and thick darkness its swaddling band and prescribed limits for it and set bars and doors and said, thus far shall you come and no farther and here shall your proud waves be stayed. Have you entered into the springs of the sea or walked in the recesses of the deep? Have the gates of death been revealed to you? Or have you seen the gates of deep darkness? Have you comprehended the expanse of the earth? Declare if you know all this. Do you give the horse his might? Do you clothe his neck with a mane? Do you make him leap like the locust? His majestic snorting is terrifying. He paws in the valley and exults in his strength. He goes out to meet the weapons. He laughs at fear and is not dismayed. He does not turn back from the sword. Upon him rattle the quiver, the flashing spear, and the javelin. With fierceness and rage, he swallows the ground. He cannot stand still at the sound of the trumpet. When the trumpet sounds, he says, Aha! He smells the battle from afar, the thunder of the captains and the shouting. And the Lord said to Job, Shall a fault finder contend with the Almighty? He who argues with God, let him answer it. And then Job answered the Lord and said, Behold, I am of small account. What shall I answer you? I lay my hand on my mouth. I have spoken once and I will not answer twice, but I will proceed no further. The word of the Lord. Please be seated. Ever since Job's three comforters uh, showed up and started brooding over Job in the midst of his terrible, terrible suffering, ever since then, Job has been asking the why question of his suffering. Why is he suffering like this? He's asking his friends who are giving him te terrible answers. He starts talking to himself, asking himself, and he starts asking God. And then his questions turn into demands. And, he, and Job over and over and over demands that God show up himself and explain himself. And you think the book of Job can't get any crazier. And then God shows up for Job to challenge Job. Because Job thinks that whatever God is doing, it's, it's dark. And so God shows up and he challenges Job that in his demand for an explanation, in all of his wisdom, Job is actually darkening the counsel of God. And so God challenges him, says, dress for action like a man. I will question you and you make it known to me. That language right there, that is God talking about the ancient sport of belt wrestling. <laughs> two guys. This is what they used to do. Two guys. I think we talked about this with the kids a couple weeks ago. Two guys get in an argument. They get in a dispute. They put their belts on around their tunics, and they go. Uh, and you grab the. You start off. You grab the other guy's belt, and whoever throws his opponent down wins the argument. So uh, here is God, and He says, "Put your belt on. Let's go." Uh, except the, uh, it, this is not in the Olympics. It should be in the Olympics. Dress for action like a man is put on your wrestling belt. <clears throat> and let's do this. <clears throat> in Job's combat with God, though, it's not a physical 
This is an actual physical combat. You do see that with Jacob. We could talk about that. That would be a lot of fun. That's actually not what happens here. <clears throat> God challenges Job to a test. It's a test of wisdom. So wisdom contests were super, super popular back in the ancient Near East. King Solomon uh, talks about this in 1 Kings 19. <clears throat> he has this wisdom contest with Queen Sheba, and he wins. Uh, in ancient Babylonian and Sumerian literature, uh, a favorite type of fable was this clash of wits, the, this wisdom test, and it usually happened between these personified <clears throat> characters, animals. So there's this, y'all know, y'all remember the ancient fable about the ox and the horse? Remember this one where uh, the ox and the horse, they argue over who's the superior animal? This is ancient, ancient stuff. Uh, the horse talks about how awesome he is in war. And then the ox counters that all the greatest instruments <clears throat> of war are made from his leather. And then the horse counters back with, uh, well, he's taken care of by humans so well. And look at the ox, he sleeps in his own filth. And on and on and on and on they go. Then there's the ancient fable about the dispute between the tamarisk tree and the palm tree. You'll remember that one. <laughs> uh, the tamarisk tree uh, it points out that the king just held a, who's the superior tree? Well, the king just held a banquet, a banquet in my shade. And then the palm tree comes back and says, oh yeah, well, I'm literally planted in the king's courtyard. And then the tamarisk tree comes back with, oh yeah, but they use my wood to make all their idols for all their gods. And then the palm tree comes back and says, yeah, but what do they do with those idols? They cover them with silver because you're not all that pretty. That's the literal translation from the ancient Sumerian. Um, it's a joke. But that is, that's, what that, that's how the fable goes. Okay, and at the end of these fables, one of the gods shows up and he settles the dispute. Like, who's the greater tree? Who's better, the ox or the horse? Okay, and, and I'm not going to tell you, you've got to go read them. Actually, they don't know how they end. They don't have those parts of the <laughs> ancient myth. Uh, but God, so God shows up. This is, Job would have been familiar with this stuff. God shows up, and since wisdom is Job's forte, uh, you might have thought Job is thinking, well, I'll show you that's how you debate. Let's do wisdom. Except God kicks off his challenge with, you think my counsel is dark. Who darkens my counsel with words without knowledge? You might be a counselor in your community. Job, you may have schooled you, uh, these three fools in your debate, but now I'm the teacher, and you're the student. You're going to listen to me, and then you're going to answer me. So God's counsel, what he's talking about here is it's his plan. It's his design for all of creation and the history of creation. And so he speaks to his counsel, he speaks to his plan, he speaks to his design, and God begins and he ends pointing out Job's non-existence at creation. You know, one Old Testament commentator summarizes it this way, is well-worded, that God exposes Job's ignorance of how the earth was founded, how the sea was bounded, the earth's days rounded by the cycle of dawn and darkness, and neither has Job sounded the depths of the sea. Job, he, he would have been familiar with these, you know, ancient fables, wisdom stuff, but he also would have been familiar with ancient Near Eastern pagan creation myths of like how this all came to be. For all these ancient Near Eastern pagan myths about how they all, what they all have in common is how was creation uh, brought about? Well, it's because gods were warring with one another. And, you know, in that cataclysm fight, we get 
creation. So you can go back to, you'll remember these two, uh, the ancient Near Eastern Canaanite epic of Baal, the uh, Babylonian epic uh, Enuma Elish, uh, these are fun. In the Canaanite myth, uh, Baal fights the sea monster god Yom. In the Babylonian myth, Marduk fights the chaos dragon monster Tiamat. Uh, and the heroes, they defeat these monsters. And then after defeating the monster gods, the hero gods, they go on to build temples for themselves. They go on to build these royal residences where they sit enthroned as king in order to express their kingly triumph as a result of their victory over the chaos monster and their creation. Does that sound familiar? These are myths, but they're ripoffs. They're, they, they are garbled up history, but they represent like genuine memory, historical memory of, wait, I've heard this before. I've heard this somewhere. It's just gotten garbled up. And what we see, uh, where we see the truth is in God's revelation in the Bible right here with Job. You get this hearkening back to Genesis where you get the demythologizing in, in those myths and you get the real thing. Think about this. God's description here to Job, like where were you at creation? It goes all the way back to the beginning. Like to Genesis 1 stuff, to, the, to before the fall stuff, to the very beginning of God creating everything out of nothing, in nothing, and God starts by creating the deep and the darkness and, and everything is formless and void. And then God conquers that chaos, conquers that chaos. It's not the same as the myths. There's no struggle with evil. There is no sin yet. There is no enemy. There is no Satan at this point. But there is still this idea that there is chaos that has to be conquered. And it's conquered in a different way than in the myths. It's not conquered through redemption. It's not conquered through judgment. It is conquered by God speaking, organizing the earth, creating all these different realms and kingdoms and rulers and kings. He creates it all out of nothing, and then he gives a design. And when God finishes, what does he do? He takes his seat. He takes his seat in his heavenly cosmic sanctuary. Heaven is his throne. The earth is his footstool. The whole cosmos is his palace. So God's interrogation of Job, it covers all of space. From the earth to heaven, covers all of its inhabitants. And his questions to Job cover all of time. From the singing of the morning stars at the laying of the foundations of the cosmos to the shouting to the present moment of the shouting of captains in the latest wars of human history. And there he begins to point up the vanity of mankind, uh, pointing out that even my horses are not afraid of your wars. Oh, the vanity of man. And then he builds up to the end. He goes all the way to the end of history, to the end of time, God's final vignette here. He's directing Job heavenward, we didn't read this part. I'm going to read it for you now, but this is where God ends. But right before he says, now Job, answer me. Uh, he's pointing to the hawk. And he says this, is it by your understanding that the hawk soars and spreads his wings toward the south? Is it at your command that the eagle mounts up and makes his nest on high? From there, he spies out the prey. His eyes behold it from afar. His young one sucks up blood. And where the slain are, there he is. 
it's really, really graphic imagery for the end of days. It's really graphic imagery for the end of the world, the hawk feasting on the slain bodies of war. And that's later picked up in the book of Revelation to describe judgment day. God is saying, like, look, look above you, Job, to the hawk soaring in the sky heavenward, waiting at the end of the world to be called by God to this judgment feast with its prey, rebel mankind. And this is the ultimate vanity of human wisdom, that man, in the end, apart from God, is reduced to food for the subhuman creation. This is God choosing the foolish things of the earth to shame the wise. He's pointing out how big he is. He's pointing out that he's in control. Here's some fun, uh, more perspective, like what we did with the kids. Uh, did y'all know? Let's just imagine. Imagine if the earth, if the distance from the earth to the sun, well, don't imagine this. The earth, the distance from the earth to the sun is like 93 million miles. Okay, now imagine that that distance is reduced to the thickness of a piece of paper. Okay, look at your bulletin. Thickness of a piece of paper. The diameter of just this galaxy, the Milky Way, it would be a stack of papers 310 miles high. Okay. Our galaxy is just one of a bajillion, I don't think that's a real number, just one of a gazillion galaxies in our cluster of galaxies. Okay, let me put it this way. Our galaxy relates to all the other galaxies just in our cluster of galaxies the way a single grain of sand relates to all the other sand on the coast of Florida. And if you ever go up to the moon, you will notice that you cannot see any human beings from the moon down on earth. We are less than a speck, and yet the Bible says that he holds it all together with the word of his power. You want to stand there with Job and look at each other and say, is this the kind of being that we look at and say, I'll believe in you if you give me a full and satisfactory explanation to all my questions. Uh, God, I'd like to extend, the, uh, extend an offer to you. I'd like you to be my assistant. Listen, I'll, I'll, I'll need you to be on call 24-7. I won't have much personal dealings with you, but when I call, I'm gonna need you to pick up that phone. I'm gonna need you to go do that thing for me. Uh, is this the kind of being <clears throat> you put on hold? God, right now is a really busy, busy, busy season of my life. I'll get back to you when I, when I can, I promise. <clears throat> God's counsel convinces Job of his incompetence for the role of world governor while magnifying the wisdom of God who is actually creation's ruler. And God says to Job, like, look at my, look at my creation. <laughs> look how awesome it is. Do you see the ultimate vanity of human wisdom compared to mine, of mankind's cultural strivings to be their own gods? Who is God? Like, who is truly the ruler and the king of creation? And you think about, and what God wants us to do is think about the relationship between God's rule of nature, which we don't understand, and his rule of history. If we cannot comprehend God's rule of nature, we should not expect to comprehend his rule of history, not completely. We're creatures, we're finite. We, we, 
we should not expect to fully comprehend his rule uh, and therefore we cannot possibly judge how he's doing it. God is the good architect of the cosmos and history and it is according to God, it is all going according to plan. Listen, in the face of evil, in the face of suffering, there are really bad, bad answers to it. And we've heard some from the book of Job. Uh, isn't that like, you must, you're suffering, you must have done something bad, and you deserve this. God is punishing you. It's a bad answer. It's also a bad answer to say, uh, I don't know why this is happening, just God's will. Well, that's, a, that's also a bad answer. Uh, it's just as bad to assume I'm going to say answer, but this is an assumption to assume I cannot see any point to my suffering. Therefore, God could not have any point either. Because we can say that. We can say, I don't understand my suffering. I don't, I don't uh, see any point to my suffering. And then we look to God and say, so God, I can't trust that you love me, which means we are concluding, I don't understand this suffering but I understand it enough to see that there's no point to it. And there's a big contradiction in there. On the one hand, I don't understand the point of my suffering, but on the other hand, I understand my suffering is pointless. So based on that self-contradictory premise, I conclude God does not love me or care about me. And no, we don't put it in words like that, but that is, that, that, that is where we end up. And it doesn't, it doesn't make any sense to be, it doesn't make any sense to be mad at God when suffering comes if he really doesn't exist or if he's really not all powerful or if he's really not all loving and good. If there is no God like that, you would not be mad at him in the first place for not stopping evil and suffering. We're mad at God in the midst of our evil and suffering for not stopping evil and suffering because deep down we know he is there and we know he is all powerful and we know he is good. And the point is, if we have a, a God so great that we can be mad at him for not stopping evil, for not stopping suffering, we have a God so great who may have a reason for that suffering that we do not understand that we can't fully understand. It is that thing. We are a thimble. God's wisdom is an ocean. You cannot fit one into the other. The faith that we want is not faith that comprehends the mystery of the cosmos and our suffering, but faith that still loves and worships God even when we don't understand creation which just is amazing as what God says is what God does not say here. Because you, you notice it. God does not give Job an explanation to his suffering. He shows up and he doesn't answer Job's question. And, we, and we're sitting there and we're reading it and we're like, wait, I, I know. I, like, I know. We know why Job is suffering. And that's intentional because the author has told us why, why Job is suffering. It's also the author being very deliberate and intentional of telling us that God is showing up and not telling Job why he is suffering because God is being deliberate here. God does not give an explanation for the mysterious treatment of his servant Job. And so there is no opportunity for Job to defend himself 
against any imagined charges that he has against God. God won't even hear his charges. Like, Job has no base for his charges, but that's not why God is here. God is not here for the why of Job's suffering. He is shown up for the why of Job's faith in God. In the 1980s, there's this film, uh, it's called Amadeus. It's about Wolfgang Amadeus Mozart, uh, the great composer. Uh, the story is told, though, from the perspective of his peer and his rival, Antonio Salieri. Uh, at this point, Salieri is an old man in the film, and he's giving his confession. And uh, as he's giving his confession, he starts off recounting his boyhood prayer to God. He says this, While my father prayed earnestly to God to protect his business, I would offer up secretly the proudest prayer a boy could think of. Lord, make me a great composer. Let me celebrate your glory through music and be celebrated myself. Make me famous through the world. Dear God, make me immortal. After I die, let people speak my name forever with love for what I wrote. And in return, I will give you my chastity, my industry, my deepest humility every hour of my life. Amen. And Salieri grows up, super religious, super hardworking, super dedicated, gives to the poor, is chaste, swears off women. He becomes a great composer. And then Mozart shows up. And when Mozart shows up, Salieri is just in, in awe of Mozart. He loves his work. He's ecstatic to meet Mozart. And then he meets him. And he is so devastated. He is so disappointed because the way the, way the film depicts Mozart uh, is that Mozart is this vulgar man, lacking, lacking the grace, lacking the sophistication of his music. And Salieri just cannot, he cannot believe it. He cannot understand it. He cannot believe that God would choose Mozart over him for a gift like this. And in the film, again, in the film, Salieri uh, discovers, he, he more and more discovers the depths of Mozart's depravity. I mean, in the film, he's awful. Mozart is, is truly awful. Uh, and, and Salieri is finding out more and more of this. Uh, just as he's finding out, discovers the depths of his depravity, uh, he, he sees more and more the incredible genius of Mozart, and he just cannot make sense of it. Uh, and he falls into despair. He ends up renouncing his faith. He vows to destroy Mozart as a way of getting back at God. He throws his crucifix in the fire uh, and he prays a new prayer. From now on, we are enemies, God, you and I, because you chose for your instrument a boastful, lustful, smutty, infantile boy and gave me for reward only the ability to recognize this incarnation because you are unjust, unfair, unkind, I will block you. I swear it. I will hinder and harm your creature on earth as far as I am able. And in the movie, he ends up killing Mozart. God shows up to Job, not to give an account to Job of how he is running creation, but to expose the why of Job's faith. Like Salieri did not love God for God, Salieri loved and served God because Salieri loved Salieri. Is Job 
trusting, loving, serving God because he loves God or because he loves Job? And what about you and me? The good news for us here is Job is unable, he's unable to interrupt the stream of God's questioning. He's unable to, to come back with any rebuttal, any challenge, any point of clarification that might support him in the decision of this wisdom contest. Job is so impressed with the creator's wisdom, he relents. He gives up. But it's not just God's wisdom that brings Job back. It's God, it is God himself. What was... What, what we realize is what was shattering to Job in, in the debate with his friends is it's not all that he had lost. Yes, he mourned that, but that, that, uh, that is actually not what is shattering Job, not ultimately. It was the thought that he had lost God. And when God shows up in the whirlwind, he doesn't, he doesn't answer the why question of Job's suffering. He doesn't give him any hope of relief from his suffering. But in the whirlwind, God does give Job assurance that even though Job has fallen, God is still his God. He shows up and he says, you don't get it, but I am still here with you. God is the transcendent creator of the universe. And you see how near he draws to Job in awesomeness and in love. God is carrying out his promise after the fall to save a people by grace at the cost of this Savior to come. And the promise at work in Job, we hear we have seen it fulfilled. In the one who drew so near to us that he came down from heaven and became one of us. Jesus, the Son of God, who came to save us by living for us and dying for us. And why did he do it? Because God says, again, like we said to the kids, adults, you need to hear this because you are the best part of his creation. We may not know the why of our pain, the why of our suffering, the why of our brokenness, but we know why we believe in our God. Because of Jesus who takes ultimate pain, suffering, and brokenness on him in order to save us. I heard the story this week about a 19th century scholar at uh, Balliol College uh, of Oxford. It's about a name, uh, Dr. Benjamin Jowett. Uh, Alistair Begg tells a story in one of his books. In one of his courses, Dr. Jowett is asked, uh, we would like to know, this is from his students, we would like to know your opinion of God. And the story goes that Dr. Jowett replied, I, I should think it of great impertinence where do I express my opinion about God. The only constant anxiety in my life is to know what is God's opinion of me. Loved ones, you look at Jesus and you see that he loves you and his grace is sufficient for you. So this religious commitment of Job right here, it is being judged. It's being judged by the terms of the ordeal uh, uh, precisely defined by Satan himself at the beginning of this conflict. Like Satan gets to, Satan gets to uh, uh, decide the terms. And according to those terms, the genuine devotion to God uh, is, gen the genuine devotion to God is devotion that's not, that's not brought on by any temporal blessings. When Job submits to the Lord here, 
he is still in unrelieved misery. There is no promise, there is no hint of relief or improvement in his circumstances. As far as Job knows, he's expecting to go down to the grave like this, and he submits to God. Job is repenting, and he is turning back to God here, and that conclusively demonstrates that Satan's allegations, that Job is a hypocrite, and that God is a fraud, uh, are all bunk, that God's claims are true. So that question that, that Satan brought up at the beginning, does Job serve God for nothing? Yeah, Job serves God for nothing. And Job is such good news to us because if God's grace can preserve and save Job, it can preserve and save every single one of us. God comes to challenge Job in two stages. This is stage one. The first fall of the, wretch, uh, of the wrestling match is decided. God demands that Job admit defeat, and he does. And then God picks Job back up, and he demands they go another round. God is not done with Job. Let's pray. Father, we, we thank you uh, for this story, uh, this true account of your servant Job. And we thank you for the, uh, the heights, the depths, uh, the breadth of your love that it exposes, the awesomeness, the truthfulness of your grace that sustains us. We thank you for our Lord and Savior. We pray that today you would help us look to him again. Set our eyes, the eyes of our faith, on our risen Lord and Savior in order that we could have assurance and go through this day knowing that come what may, you love us. Help us to hold out that same grace to each other, to anyone who will listen. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.